We're going to go ahead and get started. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Happy New Year. It's good to see you all here this morning. We are um, starting a new season of the church calendar. This season's called Epiphany. The word epiphany, of course, it, it means something like to appear or to make known. It's very um, close to the idea of revelation. Um, so epiphany is this season in which we consider what God has revealed when God showed up in the world in Christ. And how did people figure out what was actually going on? Like how did Jesus go from this obscure Jewish refugee with a, you know, frankly questionable origin story to a powerful teacher with this pretty sizable following who eventually became a threat to the Jewish establishment and the Roman Empire. Like, how did that happen? And, and given then what was being revealed in Christ, how did people respond and, and, and react? And what did those reactions say about the people? So during Epiphany, what we do is we tell these great stories about the life of Christ, and then we ask ourselves, Two questions. What's being revealed here about God and about humanity? And then how should we respond to this revelation as the faithful people of God? That's Epiphany. It's a season of revelation and response. And people have pretty strong responses to the presence of, of Christ in our, in our scripture for today. Um, they're going to have, the characters will have strong responses. It's true in our lives as well. The way we Respond to Christ, I think, is very um, telling about, it, it just reveals a lot about a person's character and priorities, what, what we value, what we truly worship, what we see as ultimate, what we see as powerful, where we place our trust. And so um, it, that's epiphany. It's kind of going to reveal a lot of this, this stuff, especially the way that we see Christ. And I, I want to try something here, an exercise. I want you to look at a picture and tell me by show of hands what you see. So here we go. Raise your hand if you first see a duck. All right, raise your hand if you see a rabbit first. All right. Ra raise your hands if you see both, right? And now you're torn which to see, right? So these, these are sometimes called ambiguous images. And it's weird, the way our visual system works, it can be exploited graphically to create multiple perceptions of the same image that are each very kind of stable. In fact, um, you, it, once you see one of these one way, it's very hard to try and see them the other way. Usually we have a default way of interpreting these images. So, so look at this one. On this one, do you see Kayla, the 24-year-old grad student, willing to split a studio apartment with you as long as you have a year's rent and cash up front? Or do you see your great aunt Sandy from the Bronx, who has a second bedroom and enough cat dander to coat your lungs and your clothing and smokes camel straights all day long? Like, which one do you see? Do you, do you see Kayla? So this is Kayla sort of looking backwards. Or do you see your great aunt Sandy? Here's your great aunt Sandy. She's uh, quite a looker with that, <laughs> with that great big chin of hers. Um, so, so 
these kind of images, they've been around for a really long time, and there's, there's something, I think, kind of unnerving about them, the way they're so blatantly open to interpretation. There's this really famous one from France in 1871. Um, viewed upright, it's meant to look like Napoleon Bonaparte, but when it's inverted, it transforms old Boney into an ass, if you can see it. <laughs> and the French thought this, this was just quite the hilarious joke. How about this one? Who sees the face of a man here? You see it? Can you see the word liar? You see it? See it there? Isn't that wild? All right, look at this next one. Who sees the face of a woman here? Anybody see a saxophone player? Do you see it? That's in there too. So let's do, first let's do her face. So there's the outline of her face. And now here's the outline of the saxophone player. Spinning image of Bill Clinton circa 1994. <laughs> All right, this next one. Who, who sees in this next one the head of a man kind of looking up and, up and to the left toward the corner? There, you see that? Anybody see an Eskimo in a parka? Who sees the man? Who sees the Eskimo? Oh, that's interesting. Wild. So here's the outline of the man, the face, which to me looks a lot like Bono. Do you see it? <laughs> if you need help seeing there he is, <clears throat> very pensive. Or you can see the other way, it's like the back of an Eskimo in a, in a parka. Do you see it peering into, like he's peering into the cave with a little mitten on his right hand? Anybody, if you see just a regular image, can you see it one way and then switch in your mind to see it the other? It's weird that we have this ability to, we're looking at the same picture and we might be, as individuals, seeing it very different ways. And even within ourselves, we can, we can convert from one to the other. We can't see both at the same time. Our brains won't do it. We have to interpret it one way or another way. And this is how meaning-making works. Meaning doesn't exist like somewhere out there. So meaning isn't within the picture itself. Meaning has to be generated by each human being. The meaning that we attribute to anything, a story, a word, an image, an event, a relationship, it comes from within us, within our own minds and imaginations. And this happens really, really fast, almost without our thinking about it. We have a snap reaction as our minds interpret what we see. And to a large extent, we can't really control our initial response. And it can take real effort to see the other perspective. Sometimes it takes training. Somebody has to draw around it in little blue lines kind of to help us see a different way. And I think this is important to keep in mind during the season of Epiphany. Because when Jesus appears in the world, like when God comes to us in human flesh, the meaning we attribute to his appearing, this Epiphany, what we see when we look at, for instance, the stories of the life of Christ, it, it says a lot more, I think, about us than about Jesus. Our reactions, they, they reveal our own heart, our hopes and fears and dispositions, our character and priorities, what we worship, what we see as ultimate, where we place our trust, who we confess as Lord. It's very telling, our reaction to Christ. 
And the same is true in the story that Kristen read for us a little bit earlier. All these different characters, how they react when they see Christ. It's very telling. You take the normal everyday Jewish people, for example, just living in the land of Israel in the time of Christ, this once proud people, this once world power with their own government and army and laws, a country in which, by the way, every single citizen got a piece of the land. They had their own land just by, it was part of their birthright, every person. And they all had their own little piece of the, the promise of shalom and peace and flourishing. It gave them this really strong communal sense of identity and purpose and, and faith. Now all of a sudden they're ruled over by the Romans who keep take, you know, raising their taxes and taking their land wringing Israel out like a sponge, just squeezing every last drop of wealth from their economy while their own corrupt leaders were in on the grift. They were, they were um, getting a piece of the action. These people suddenly had few rights, no army, no sense of hope for the future, and the, the Jewish people were nursing a serious sense of grievance at the loss of cultural power. They were tired of groveling, tired of the injustice, and this sense of grievance became the dominant issue of, of their time. Grievance consumed every aspect of Jewish life. They wanted somebody who would come and finally say the things that they were too afraid to say and express their sense of rage, even to be violent for their cause. Now, they weren't sure that they wanted actual change to happen, they were a bit afraid of too many changes, but they liked to talk about change and claim to be fighting for change. They just didn't want to be, you know, inconvenienced or risk losing what little they, they had. So, so when they looked at Christ, the typical Jewish person living in the first century in Palestine, they saw someone who could express their sense of grievance. That's what they saw in him. The Jewish leadership saw something else. You know, they had split by this time into four factions. There were the zealots. Zealots were revolutionaries. They were basically terrorists and assassins. They were an ultra-violent nationalist group. They wanted to um, provoke a war with Rome, a war that they, know the, they knew they couldn't win, but they thought if they would provoke this war that God would um, miraculously come to their aid and they would end up winning the war. That's what they wanted. There was another group called the Essenes. They were kind of monastics. They decided to flee to a desert commune down by the Dead Sea and just sort of hole up and try to protect their way of life. And then there were the Pharisees. They ran the synagogues. Their idea was if everybody kept the law just like as well as the priests, that God would send a Messiah who would basically vindicate them and, and lead them. And they were the authority on the Jew keeping the Jewish laws. And then there were the Sadducees. They ran the temple and the festivals and, and colluded with Rome. And basically, these were, this was a ruling class. They were super rich and wealthy and powerful. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, they made up most of the Jewish leadership. And I don't know if you noticed when Kristen read the this, this story where they were in the story, but they're hanging around in King Herod's court. He asks them where the Messiah is to be born, and they tell him, Bethlehem, they quote that passage from Micah. So they are there leveraging their positions for a seat at Herod's table. And so when they look at Jesus, they saw a threat to the status quo. 
a threat to their arrangement with, with Herod that gave them a lot of wealth and power. And then there's Herod the Great, the ruler of Judea. He's one of my favorite figures in, in the scripture. I think you really have to understand Herod to understand Jesus' ministry because in the scripture they're held, held what they're held in deep contrast. In the beginning, it's Herod. Then later on, it's all the different Herod, Antipas, Philippi, all the, the Herods of the regions, his three kids. But he's, Christ is held, his rule is held in contrast to Herod. So we need to understand Herod the Great. Um, his father was born in Idumea, a region south of Jerusalem. His people were the Edomites, the ancient Arab people. Centuries earlier, uh, the Jews had conquered that land and forced all the Arabs to convert to Judaism. So Herod's father was a practicing Jew of Arab ancestry. Um, his mother was an honest-to-goodness Arab princess. Her family had built the city of Petra that is really, really, really famous because of um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Um, <laughs> serious, like the only, only reason anybody knows what this is. Um, <laughs> About 60 years before Jesus was born, Israel had, had won a little bit of autonomy in Jerusalem, uh, and the, they had their own king, the Hasmonean dynasty. They were the Jewish royal family. They held the throne in Israel. And Herod's father became the prime minister, like second in command to the Hasmonean king. And when Rome then invaded Judea, Herod's father brokered a controversial alliance between Israel and Rome. And through that alliance, Herod's father became really, really powerful. He became friends with Mark Antony and became one of Julius Caesar's favorite governors. So, so Herod like, grew up in wealth and power with this really powerful dad. And when he came of age, his father set him up to oversee a region in the north called Galilee. So at age 25... And think about how mature you were at age 25. Herod is set up. He's married. He has a child. He is set up as the ruler of the region of Galilee, really important trade area. I mean, he had, this guy had really made it. Then what, happened, what always happens happened. The Parthians, or, or, Parthians I'm sorry, um, invaded Judea and took Jerusalem away from Rome. They installed their own king, a new, a new king from the old Hasmonean dynasty. It's a serious threat to Herod um, in front of, sitting up there in, in Galilee, right? And so he, he took this big risk, left his kingdom. He sailed for Rome in the dead of winter, found Mark Antony, and convinced him to plead his case before the Roman Senate. And the argument Mark Antony made was, look, Judea is really important for trade, for defense, I mean, it's the eastern edge of the empire. This is where the invasions always come from. And we need somebody tough over there. And this Herod guy, he's tough. So let's, let's install him, let him go retake Jerusalem for us and subdue that region. So that's what they did. And in, in 40 BCE, the Roman Senate crowned Herod king of the Jews. So you can see where they're setting Jesus up in distinction to this. So th there's this famous scene where Herod climbs Capitoline Hill in Rome with Mark Antony and Octavian to offer sacrifices to the Roman gods. Think about this. A Jewish king is in Rome offering sacrifices to the pagan gods. 
Then Herod returns to Judea with a packing a Roman army behind him and started a bloody war that lasted three years. He finally took Jerusalem and he sent the Hasmonean king off to be killed. And then he killed the entire Jewish aristocracy. Just put them all to death and installed a brand new aristocracy who'd be beholden to him. But the, the newly crowned King Herod, he still had some problems. For one thing, now all the Jews hated him because he'd just been warring with them for three years. Plus, this new aristocracy was not trusted by the people and terrible at their jobs. But the really big problem was that in Jewish law, Israel's king had to be from a Jewish royal family. Herod's parents were Arabs. So he needed a new Jewish wife. So he just cut his first wife loose and began looking for a new one, and he came upon a beautiful Hasmonean princess named Mariamne. And the strangest thing happened at this point in his story. Herod fell madly in love with Mariamne, and she with him. By all accounts, it was real. Like, they just fell in love. They were married, start having children together, and Herod actually kind of softens a little bit because of this relationship. But Mary Amney had this brother, and she wanted her new husband to give him a job. You know, there's always a brother-in-law who needs a job. So, <laughs> so Herod installs his brother-in-law as the new high priest, and this turns out to be a bad move because the people take one look at him. He's from that Hasmonean dynasty. They look at him in his priestly robes and think, why isn't this guy our king? That should be our king, not Herod. He became one of Herod's rivals. So Herod does what he always does. He had the guy offed. He had him assassinated. He tried to make it look like an accident. But Mariamne knew. And, and then at this point, she turned into Talia Shire from The Godfather, like, I know it was you. You know that scene? <laughs> if you know, you know. Um, and she rejected Herod. And it just drove him absolutely crazy. He couldn't think, he couldn't work, he was having a lot of trouble oppressing people and being cruel. He just wasn't feeling it at the time, you know, he was pining away after Mary Amney. And um, eventually Herod's mom and sister got tired of the star-crossed lover routine, so they accused Mary Amney of adultery. Um, she wasn't committing adultery, but they, they accused her and trumped up evidence, and it put Herod in a bind, and he had to order the execution of the love of his life, at which point he really lost it. He ends up discovering the plot. He kills his own mom and sister for this and then just starts killing people left and right. He just goes on a killing spree. Rome, of course, loves this. This is exactly what they want on their eastern flank. flank it's some nutter who's just like indiscriminately violent. But Herod was a mess. He was a real mess. And when he finally started to get it together... Um, he realized he's going to need to win back the Jewish allegiance of the people. And so he came to a solution which he thought would solve all his problems at once. He threw himself into these massive building projects. One famous one is he took a stretch of exposed coastline on the Mediterranean and transformed it into this incredible port city. And he purposely picked a place that was not suited for a port or for a city. Just to, to say, you know, nature doesn't decide where things go. Herod decides where things go. Um, by the way, he developed the first way to pour concrete underwater. He was the first guy to do this and to make his breakwater. 
did it so well. This, these things are still there. To, they're still intact to this very day. I've been there. It's stunning. And he named this city Caesarea Maritania, um, Caesar's town by the sea. That's what it meant. So the whole thing was a tribute to Caesar. And then as his tribute to, to the Hebrew people, he decided to rebuild the temple. The current temple was like 500 years old and run down. And, and the people were afraid. They're like, if you tear down the temple, are you really going to build us a new one? So he said, look, I'll build the, a new one around the old one. You'll, we'll never you know, stop offering sacrifices. Um, the problem is only priests could enter the temple. So he trained a thousand priests in carpentry and construction and engineering so that they could do the work without breaking Jewish law. And he's bending over backwards to gain the allegiance of his people. And, and it kind of worked for many. Jerusalem, you know, is... 100, 200,000 people maybe, except at festivals when it just swelled. It was like a million people in the city. They needed infrastructure. They needed places to stay and eat and new markets. And he wanted to build a massive plaza on the top of Mount Moriah where the temple was, but the mountain was just too small. So he decided, let's just make the mountain bigger. And he, he, that's what he did. He built this massive retaining wall on the top of the hill. It's like a 35-acre rectangle and just filled it in with dirt and rock to expand the usable land at the top. So we, anytime you hear about, about the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, that's, that's what they're talking about. It's built by, by Herod. Still stands to this day. In fact, this is a picture of me, tiny me in the green coat, praying at the bottom of the wall. Those are the stones laid by Herod the Great. But despite all of this, Herod, um, he was getting support and, you know, making money, but he, he just became more and more isolated and paranoid. He, he remarried a woman and renamed her Mariamne II. There was a Mariamne III, too. I mean, he really got kind of creepy at some points in his life. He was so paranoid, he made these insane fortresses like the one up at Masada. It's on top of a big bluff. And only a crazy person would, would make something like this. Herod ended up murdering two wives, three sons, a mother-in-law, a brother-in-law, and an uncle. I mean, you thought your family had conflict at the holidays? Like, In the end, Herod the Great tried to commit suicide. He botched it. But word had gotten out that he was dead, and so the son that was his heir moved to take power, and when Herod found out about it, he had that son killed, and, and then ended up succumbing. Um, and he, but he knew, uh, his last act was, he knew when he died, nobody would care, so he left standing orders that when he died, scores of prominent Israelites were to be murdered on that day, rounded up and murdered, so that there would be weeping in Israel on the day of his death. That's what kind of nutter we're talking about. That's, that's Herod the Great. So when he looked at Jesus, all he could see was a rival for power. And Jesus, you know, they make a big deal in the birth story. He was born in the time of King Herod, right? He was actually born in the final year of Herod the Great's life, when he was at his craziest, most paranoid, his most violent he was living in his palace outside of Jerusalem, and this caravan from the east shows up, these magi. And they're asking to meet Herod's son, the newborn king of the Jews. They had seen the star in the east and had come to pay their respects. You can just imagine Herod's reaction to this. 
The word magi, um, it meant scholars, actually. Astrologers, maybe, um, sorcerers, scientists. Um, they seem to be some kind of priests of a pagan religion from Persia. This is, you know, centuries before Islam. They're following a star, which sounds odd to us, you know, but in a world before streetlights, people paid a lot of attention to the night, the night sky. And smart people, scientific people in their culture had this practice that if something happened on earth, they would look for a corresponding event in the sky, or if some big event happened in the sky, they would look for a corresponding event on earth. It's very scientific in those days. And they're from the east. East of there is Babylon, where the Jews had been exiled. So while the Jews were in exile, these, these magi had soaked up some knowledge from them, learned something about Jewish Torah. We know this because they knew what kind of gifts to bring. There was this old prophecy from Isaiah 60 that said, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawning, and they shall bring gold and frankincense. And shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So the, the Magi were apparently familiar with this text because they brought gold and frankincense. Don't bother so much with the myrrh next time, but any Monty Python fans? Not too many. Okay, sorry. They seem to know what to bring. They also seem to know Messiah, um, the reign of the Messiah, would be good news not just for the Jews but for all nations, for everyone. Nations shall come into your light and kings to the brightness of your dawning. They knew this. And so the magi show up rejoicing in great hope. When the magi look at Jesus, they saw a sign of hope and peace for all nations. They saw a star. And they, they went on a quest to find this Newborn prince of peace. And they wound up in Jerusalem, which is the logical place to go, the, the seat of power. And they go to the, the, the king's palace and they ask to see Herod's newborn son. And Herod's like, <clears throat> I don't have a newborn son. And they had no idea the king was slowly, currently losing his mind. And so he says, go search um, for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Of course, the reader knows this, this is a ruse. So the Magi go, they find Jesus, and they worship him, they give him their gifts, they rejoice. But then they leave by another route. They don't go back to see Herod. And so Herod's solution was to kill every boy in Bethlehem under the age of two, just to make sure this upstart rival um, wouldn't live. But Joseph was warned in a dream, and they get up and escape to Egypt with the child. That's the story. That's the first story of Epiphany. And if you think about this, this Epiphany idea, this idea that uh, how different people can be looking at the same thing but make very different meanings of what they see. It really kind of stands out in this, in this story. With the Jewish people seeing Jesus as a vehicle for their grievance, 
The Jewish leaders seeing him as a threat to the status quo because they're getting rich. King Herod seeing him as a rival to the throne, a true king, a king who's legitimate in ways that Herod wasn't. And then there were these crazy magi from the east, total pagan outsiders. They're not even part of the Jewish family, and yet they travel halfway across the world to see the child. And in this story, they're the only ones who look at Jesus and see him as a sign of great hope. The only ones who bring him gifts. Only ones who worship him. And it kind of sets the tone. I mean, for Christ, it will just be this way throughout his entire life. It will always be the outsiders, the desperate ones, the left out, the left behind. They will be the ones who see him as their hope, as their king. They will be the ones who choose to follow him, choose to lay down their lives. It's never the religious elite. It's never the powerful, the rich, the ruling classes. It's these crazy magi, these pagan outsiders. They're the ones who get it right. If you could go back in time and kind of quiz the magi and, and find out about their beliefs and how they see God, how they understood the world, they got almost nothing right, but they got this one thing right. When the magi looked at Christ, they saw the hope of the world. And the season of Epiphany, it it starts this way because it asks you and I to think about the reality that we actually get to choose our response to what we see in Christ. And so on on this first Sunday of Epiphany, this is the question I want to leave with us. When When you look at Jesus, what do you see? What do we see as a, as a people, as a community? Do we see Christ as a, a vehicle for our grievances? I mean, that's how many religious people view Jesus today. And they use Christ to prop up their political beliefs and alliances, to express their sense of grievance, the loss of cultural power, to excuse then their own violence and corruption. It's a very old move. Do we see Christ as a threat to the status quo, right? When the status quo is beneficial for us? This is how the wealthy and powerful have have always viewed Jesus. And the problem is always that, you know, when we have wealth and power, we want to feel like we're good people, but still live basically selfishly. That's what we want. And, and so the move the, the wealthy make is always to kind of neuter Jesus, domesticate Jesus, sentimentalize him. How, um, Stanley Hauerwas, one of my favorite guys, he calls this inoculating people with enough Jesus to make them immune to the real thing. Give them a sentimental Jesus who just affirms all the decisions they've already made in their lives. And then when they meet, when they see the real Jesus, they won't even know what they're seeing. They won't see it. Because the real Jesus is, is a threat to this, any status quo in which there's not enough for everyone. Everyone. 
where human flourishing and wholeness does not extend to the margins to the vulnerable, this is, this is not the kingdom. Christ is a threat to that, any status quo that's like that, and, and refuses to be domesticated or sentimentalized. Or do we see Christ as a rival to the throne of our lives? You know, like any place we have power, at work or at home, in relationships, civic power, social power, knowledge, economic, charismatic power. It's the hardest thing in the world to stand from our own place of power or authority or control or privilege when Jesus shows up and to not see him as a threat, a rival for the throne because Christ really does want to direct our lives, wants to be Lord of our lives, not to like control us and make us miserable, but to teach us how to be human as human is meant to be, to show us the path that actually leads to flourishing and wholeness, to peace, not just for us, but for all humanity all creation. So when Jesus shows up, <clears throat> what he'll begin to do is ask us to begin to, to leverage our own resources, our own power, our own kingdoms to include outsiders, to extend the hope of peace to all nations. And we can try to see him as something else, as, as like a, a vehicle for our own grievances, as a threat to the status quo that needs to be sentimentalized or, or a rival to the throne of our lives who needs to be put to death. Or, like the Magi, we can see this as a sign of hope. And Epiphany really is meant to expose this for us. The stories we tell in Epiphany in the next few weeks, they're going to they're gonna reveal the ways in which we're really tempted or we actually do act as if we're the kings and queens of the world, our little world. And Epiphany, I mean, it's kind of cosmic. It's, it's reaching way outside to the east and the, the sign is in the stars and it's the kings of all the, the big empires and nations who are players here. So it's kind of saying like the center of the universe is shifting the ground is shifting cosmically in, in this, one, when Jesus shows up in the world. And it's going to reveal things about God, about ourselves. And the question is, will we see him as a threat and try to kill or domesticate him? Or greet him as a king and worship with a sense of wonder and rejoicing? Everyone who encounters Christ is eventually faced with this choice. And they lead to very different pictures of the world. And over the centuries, the witness of the church is that one pathway leads to destruction and death and violence and misery and suffering. And the other, it, it can lead to shalom, to flourishing a kind of life that can never be taken away. It's one of my favorite things about redemption is that I see people having this, making this choice all the time, having this encounter with Christ. And, and then I, I get to watch people just like quietly, humbly 
laying down their lives, leveraging their resources and power, sacrificing themselves to begin to include outsiders like these magi so people can flourish and find wholeness. And all of us, all of us struggle in the places that we hold power. And this is, this is an inevitable thing. But somehow, I don't know how it happened even. I just have to thank God for it. it our habits at, at redemption, the, the way that we worship, our practices, the way we read the story of God and embody it together, the, our, our way of being at redemption, our common life, it's shaping us in such a way that when we have these encounters with Christ, that we can see the meaning that we make of it is, oh, this is the way. This is the hope of the world. This is the prince of peace. And it's, it's really good news. Not just for, you know, the straight, white, rich, educated winners. It's good news for the poor. It's good news for the strugglers and the marginalized and the vulnerable and just the ragamuffins. And so this, this epiphany, what we're going to try to do is draw out these stories and be faced with this choice and try to see Jesus in, in a new way, not one that just is sentimentalized, but that really calls us into question and reveals something about us and about God. That's where we're headed. Let's pray. God, we ask your blessing on this coming season of Epiphany as we begin to really dig into the Gospels and the life of Christ. I pray that you would speak to us about our own lives, that, that you would be revealed to us, and that um, there would be a revelation of ourselves, that we would see our own lives more truly, more honestly. And thank you for this place where people live with such courage um, to follow after you, to seek first the kingdom. I'm so grateful. Amen. Will you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion. The way we do this at Redemption is we're just, we'll be released row by row by the ushers. You'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. You just take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and then receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond by saying, I, I will remember or however you're comfortable responding. The reason we do this is on the night when Jesus was betrayed, his last night with his disciples, he had them share in this meal, this bread and this cup. And he said, symbolically what you're doing is taking my life into your life. And every time you gather, I want you to share this symbolic meal and be reminded what you're made out of. And take my life into your life and then go live into the world as my hands and feet. And so this is why we receive communion as a church every time we gather. We're trying to remind ourselves what we're truly made of. And um, this is also why we don't limit who comes to the table. Anybody can join us in communion, and I hope that you will. But first, let's um, ask a blessing on the elements. Lord, we do ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace.
Um, may it be a spiritual food and drink to us. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?